And as you're being seated, we're going to have a little bit of a sword drill this morning, if you remember from how things were back in the VBSs and youth groups of old, as we have two passages that we're going to be looking at today in our series. The first is going to be just a single verse from each one, though we will look at the context, uh, as we see two verses. One is Jeremiah 29.11, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. That's found on page 780 in the uh, Pew Bible, if you want to find that and put your finger in, in there. And then if you would like to turn to 2 Chronicles 7.14, which can, again, in our Pew Bible, can be found on page 428. And we'll be looking at two of these passages today. Grateful for the real estate I have here on my pulpit to balance all these things. Second Chronicles, I'll begin there, again on page 428, Second Chronicles 7.14. And it reads, If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. The second verse we'll be looking at, again, if you want to flip to page 780 in our Pew Bible, on Jeremiah 29, 11, which reads, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our Lord in prayer as we seek his wisdom in looking at his word today. Oh, Lord, we do thank you for this, these passages that you have given to us today. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand them well and that we would find the truest, deepest comfort that can be offered out of these entirely. We ask all these in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There are different people that want different things in hard times. At the risk of oversimplifying, I think that we can point out two kinds of people. One would like a step one, step two, here's how you get out of the hard thing that you're going through. Be able to pull yourself out and deal with these things yourself. And I think for someone like that, I think we find 2 Chronicles 7.14 to be one, a promise that a lot will grab onto. And say, okay, my nation is in trouble. Step one, repent. Step two, pray. He turns, he heals the land. Bob's your uncle. I think there's another group of people that would say, well, I would actually rather just have a promise that things will be taken care of. Step, step one, step two, not necessary. And I think for that, we can see Jeremiah 29, 11, where it says, God's, God has plans. They're plans for good. They're not for evil. These are two verses that are extremely popular and used a lot in our Christian culture. And is one that I, with some trepidation, approach in our series that, we've, that I've titled, Ooh, So Close. If you haven't been with us in the last few weeks, we've been taking a look at common Bible passages that have been used, or rather misused and misapplied in the way that we use them. And a lot of this has come from either we have not been observing one of those contexts that we've talked about. We've talked about we need to recognize what the context of the passage is. What, does the, what is the book itself trying to say? Then we ask about the context of the people. What is this book trying to say to the people it's saying it to? How would they understand that? And finally, the context of the prose. 
How is it that this is trying to communicate to us? What tools is it using to try to get its message across? And usually, by being sure of all three of those questions, we will arrive at a proper understanding of these passages. Now, these two passages that we're looking at today, I think, are perfect illustrations of how we can have an oh-so-close interpretation of what these passages mean. Because usually, the way that we will look at these passages is that, well, God is intending some sort of welfare for me. He He is a good God. He has good things planned for me, after all. Or that if we will pray that our nations will turn around. There are truths in here where it's like, yes, that's true. But there's more to it as we're going to see. And what I hope is that as we look and find what these passages truly mean, that they won't become less meaningful to you. If you, a lot of people have appropriated Jeremiah 29, 11 as a life verse. I hope that by looking at these contexts, it'll not become less important to you. But it'll actually become more important to you as you see what these passages are really trying to say and what they are ultimately pointing us to. So, with that in mind, we're going to take a look at our two points today, which you can see on your outline. One is that God makes promises to specific people. When God's promises are made, they're made to specific people. And then the second point is that God's best is yet to come. So as we are looking at these two points, or these two passages, it's really important that we keep the context of the people in mind. How would the original audience have understood these passages? Who is God talking to when he says these things? In the Old Testament, when God has made promises to a people, they were to a very specific people. And in order to understand that... We actually need to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we see God's first promise being made to a man named Abraham. And the promise that he made to Abraham is, I'm going to create a great nation out of you. Even though he wasn't going to have children until nearly 100 years old, he was going to have the starting line to this great nation that would ultimately bring about Jesus. He doesn't know that he's called Jesus at the time. I'm skipping ahead a little bit. But this is the promise that is made to Abraham. Now, was that promise made to anyone else other than Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? The answer is no. It was made to him. He was the one that was going to create the nation. Not his nephew Lot. Not his father Terah. promise was made to Abraham that he would produce this nation. And this nation, as we can see, is... Running, running through the Bible, this nation grows, becomes a large people that's enslaved in Egypt. And God promises to these people, brings them out of slavery to Egypt, brings them to Mount Sinai and says, here's what we're going to do. You are going to be a people that is, going to, that is going to introduce the rest of the world to me. You're going to be a priesthood to the rest of the world. Here are going to be your rules for how this is going to work. Here's what you're going to eat. Here's what you're going to wear. Here's how you're going to govern yourselves. All of this laid out in Exodus and following in the first five books of the Old Testament. All of those promises that were made, the sacrificial system, how they were supposed to dress, all of that was for them. This is why we don't worry about what our clothes are made of today. Because that promise, those, those covenants, those rules 
weren't made for us. It was a promise to the Israelites. They would be the ones that have to keep themselves separate because they were going to be the ones to bring the Messiah into the world. The Egyptians didn't get to claim that promise. The Canaanites didn't get to claim that promise. And neither do the Americans, by extension. Now, keeping all of that in mind, then let's take a look as we go forward and let's start with 2 Chronicles 7.14. What's happening? What's the context of our passage here? Well, in this chapter, what we are seeing is the dedication of the temple. God has promised to Israel and said, hey, you guys are going to be the ones to introduce me to the rest of the nations. We need a place to go. If we're going to do that, God needs a place to be. So he has decided it was going to be this temple. And here's this and Second Chronicles 7. The temple is being dedicated. God's presence has filled this temple and Solomon is speaking to his people. And then we get here in this immediate passage in verses 11 and following, Solomon's done. He's finished. We've gone home. The buffet is closed. The celebration of potluck is over. And now Solomon is back in his home. And then it's verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And continuing, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Here, what we're seeing is the fulfillment of a promise that God has made to his servant, David, way back in 2 Samuel 7. This is anywhere from 20 to 30 years in the making, and here God has fulfilled his promise. And do you hear in this promise some echoes here? We have blessings and cursings. If you do this, then I will do that. If you do that, then I will do this. And this is the same language, the same setup, the same genre that we've seen all the way since the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, there's a whole list of if you do this, then I will do that. And if you do that, then I will do this. You disobey, you will be cursed. You do well, you obey, you will be blessed. Here is the promise that God has laid out to his people. Now again, the Egyptians don't get to claim that. The Italians didn't get to claim that. Neither do we. We don't get to say, okay, God, well, I've done this, so now you do that. God is not a math formula. He's not a physics problem. He's not a vending machine. We're not able to do those sorts of things. That's not the relationship that we have with God. So a lot of times when we will look at our land, our country, and we'll say, well, this place is really ridden with problems. There's a lot of disobedience here. So what we need to do... We look at 2 Chronicles 7, 14 and say, aha, there's our formula. We pray, he'll turn, and he'll heal us. Again, you might be correct in that application of that verse, but it depends on what you mean. This promise was made to the people of Israel. It wasn't made to us. Now, that does not mean that we do not pray for our country. 
Not the case at all. In fact, we're commanded to do that in 1 Timothy. That we are to pray for our nation. This is not to say that God is not going to be gracious if we do pray. All we're saying is that this doesn't have a promise that if we do X, he will of necessity do Y. That's what we're talking about here in 2, Corinthians, or 2 Chronicles 7.14. And then there is another thing in the same vein when we look at Jeremiah 29.11. That's why I've grouped these two things together. In Jeremiah 29.11, we see this verse, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Almost every high school graduation card has this verse put on it in some way, which is, you know, in some ways, it seems really appropriate. The high schooler doesn't know what, the, what his plans are, but at least God does. And we like to put a positive message on this and say, it's like, okay, there's the promise. It's in the Bible. That means it's for me. Well, hold on. Let's take a look at the context of the passage. What's happening here? Well, if we go back one verse... It says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you. Who's he talking to? He's talking to captives in Babylon. Not high school graduates. And what's interesting is, as commentators have pointed out, he's talking about when 70 years are over. In fact, the original audience that heard this won't get to see this fulfilled. It'll be 70 years. They'll be gone. This is a promise that they would have to declare to their children and grandchildren. They would get to see it. But not that generation. This is something that is very different than how we tend to look at it. This, again, is a promise that doesn't apply to us directly in the ways that we tend to use it. Again, this is something, it depends on how you're trying to apply this verse. If you're saying to this verse, ah, well, God has good things for me, that means nothing bad is going to happen in my life. God has promised good things for me. Therefore, if I start this business, I'm going to have record profits because I'm going to claim Jeremiah 29 11 on that business. That's not how we use this verse. Because as we can see, just in this very chapter, God is not someone who is going to hold, hold, necessarily hold back hard things from his people. God does not run a day spa. He will bring hard things into the lives of his people, which is usually contrary to how we use this verse. It's usually used to say, I won't have to go through hard things. Incidentally, we use the same thing in, in I think it's 2 Corinthians 5, where we'll use that to say, it's like, well, God won't give you anything more than you can handle. Absolutely, he will do that. That's why we have to depend on Jesus. If he could bring things into our lives and we could handle it all, then we really wouldn't need him, would we? It's the same thing here in Jeremiah 29, 11. There's going to be hard things he's going to bring into your life. That being said, there is a sense in both of these passages where there is something for us today we don't get to look at these verses and say it's like okay every promise applies just the same as it did to them it does to me nor do we get to say it's like well that passage was written to those people so we can just forget about it 
There's nothing for us in the Old Testament. We might as well not even read it. Don't do that either. Because in all of these promises, there's pointing to Jesus. That's what we're going to see as we look into our second point, that God's best is yet to come. In all of these Old Testament promises that God is making to Israel about having a land that they can call their own, about having blessing, God's promise in this is not limited to you are going to have a geopolitical border called Israel that you get to live in. If that's all that God was promising, well, there have been nations that have conquered far more territory than that. We could do a lot better than that. And indeed, God does. When he promises that there is going to be a place for his people to call home in safety forever, he's not just talking about dirt and borders. What he's talking about is the kingdom of heaven. And this is what Jesus ultimately brings. Yes, Israel does have a place to call home. It is a geopolitical area called Israel. But this is pointing towards more. And this is where we can come in and take a look at these promises. When we see him talking about if my people will turn and I will come and heal their land, we can look forward to beyond this and saying, it's like, okay, well, this passage isn't fulfilled when our guy gets in office and things start going a little bit more politically our way. God has a much bigger vision than cable news. There's a much larger hope than policy. Healing of land looks a lot more than good laws. We're talking about a healing of land. God is talking about renewing all of creation. Is that not better? Talking about the removal of sin's curse in our world. That's decidedly better than our guy is in office. And even more. Look at Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you. I think we can do a little bit better than the high school student knows what college he's going to. We can say Jesus has come to satisfy the just wrath of God aimed at you. The plans that God had for you is heaven forever. Accomplished at great cost by his son, Jesus Christ. Lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. That's his plan for you. And I think that is a beautiful thing. We can take a look at these passages and we can see their ultimate promise that is being made here. Yes, in Jeremiah 29, 11, what Jeremiah was talking about to those people was one day they would be pulled out of Babylon and be brought back home. That's a beautiful promise. But that promise was limited to them. If we somehow were to get exiled into Babylon, we don't get to claim that. But what we do get to claim is Jesus has come to provide us freedom. Jesus has come to change the plans that would have normally been for us, hell for all of eternity, and to bring us into something new. And it's the same thing here in 2 Chronicles 7.14. There is going to be an amazing healing not just of the geopolitical borders of whatever country the reader happens to be in, but across the entire world, there's going to be restoration. 
And I think there's something we can take away from this that's common to both of these passages that I hope we'll pay attention to. Have you noticed how gracious God is? In Jeremiah 29, 11, well, let me go back. In 2 Chronicles 7, 14, the people of Israel have not deserved getting to be the city where God's presence dwells. If we look at the history of Israel, I mean, this is coming off the heels of Judges, y'all. You read the book of Judges lately? These are some messed up people. Even David himself, I mean, you know, he was, he was a great king and all, but the reason why Solomon is building this temple is because David's killed too many people. And here God is saying, I'm going to be with this nation, this nation of former slaves, this nation of people who have been so stiff-necked, the Bible uses, as to say we already have to build in how this is going to work. All right, when I have to shut the heavens because of your sin, when I have to send the locusts, if you pray and you ask, then I will return and heal your land. Is that not a gracious and forgiving God? So much for the Old Testament God is the mean one. What about Jeremiah 29, 11? Scoot forward a few centuries from that point. Israel, has, Israel and Judah combined have had about 43 kings by now, eight of whom have been any good. And now they have pushed this so far that now the only thing left is for God to put about what he said in Deuteronomy, which was, if you continue to be disobedient, I'm going to remove you from this land. Note, it took centuries of disobedience before that happened. And now here we are in Jeremiah 29, 11. They haven't even gone to Babylon yet. Like Jeremiah is telling them on the way to being exiled, I'm going to bring you back. This is not forever. I'm not abandoning you. I have plans for you. I'm going to bring you back to your land. And then what I'm going to do is in that land, I'm going to send my son. And I'm going to raise him up from nothing. From a backwater corner of Nazareth. Population 400. And I'm going to bring about this promise that I've made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And he's going to cover your sin forever. And then what I'm going to do, all these promises that have been just for Israel, all this, I'm going to expand this so that the entire world gets to be put in this covenant. That the promises that have been made to Abraham are going to spiritually apply to a whole new generation from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That's the plan. So far. And there's more coming. As we've seen in later parts of the Bible in Revelation, when we hear about a new heavens and a new earth, the best is yet to come, people. So to summarize what we have said here today, if you want to use these passages, you can. If you have Christ in mind as you're doing this, absolutely pray for the state of our nation. Please do. 
Again, Bible commands it. New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 and 4. Commands us to pray for our nation. But the reason why we want to understand these things here is because if for whatever reason the Lord decides not to heal this land as we define it, we, don't have, we don't, then don't have to worry about God failing one of his promises. Amen. If America falls and fails, God hasn't. If you fall and fail, God hasn't. In your business endeavors, as we see in Jeremiah 29, 11. These things properly understood will help us to have a confidence in God, no matter what is happening that makes us claim these promises for ourselves. No matter who's in office, God's on the throne. No matter what plans of ours have fallen apart, God's plans are still very much moving forward. And while it may not be what we define as good, a chock-full bank account, obedient kids, whatever the thing is that we're finding comfort for in our life, whether that thing there is there or not, we have faith and hope in God. That's what these promises mean. And again, all of this, this is not any fancy biblical interpretation. I don't have a secret book in my office that tells me all the things that the Bible says. I have lots of books that know. What this is, is just looking at what the scriptures say. What does the chapter say? What does the surrounding chapter say? Who is this to? And how is the rest of the Bible interacted with it? The best interpretation, best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible. So in closing, to reiterate, God has been very gracious to you. It's startling how little God owes us. It's less than nothing. Yet he's been gracious to us anyway. Far more than we could ever imagine. We're so easily satisfied. God promises us so much more. These are plans for your ultimate good. Even in the midst of hardship. And may I say, as an aside, a lot of times there are what the scriptures really mean, the truths that we have, and when we say them. There's one, this is total aside, it's free for you to take home. When we encounter folks at a funeral, and when they are grieving by a casket, that is the time to weep with those who weep. And sometimes saying, it's like, well, God's going to work this out for your good. Is that true? Yes, it is. It's not the moment to bring it up. But this is still true. These plans that God has for you are ultimately for your salvation. That's what we've sung about. Anything that pushes you towards Jesus, as hard as it is, and we're not trying to minimize the hardships that will do that, but anything that pushes us toward Jesus is for our ultimate good. God has been gracious to you. And these plans that he has that are good are good. But this is only true if you're in Christ. If you have not put your trust in Christ today, then none of what I've said applies to you. And in fact, what you're experiencing here is as good as it will ever get. 
And this is, as C.S. Lewis had once put it, that this world is the closest to heaven that you will ever experience. But for the believer, this is the closest thing to hell that we will ever experience. It's what it means to be in Christ. It's what it means to have come to him and say, Lord, I am a sinner. I need you. Will you forgive me of my sin and put me on the right path? If you have put your trust in Christ today, then these promises and all that I've said gloriously apply to you. But if you haven't, then none of these apply. So get right with God. If there's anyone here who hasn't done that, I pray that this would be the, that today is the day that you would find salvation. If you need some help as to what that means and how to do that, please come talk to me. There is nothing more important here. We don't know how long we have. But what I invite, what I, who I am inviting you to is a gracious God who fulfills his promises to you whether you deserve it or not. And none of us do. This is the beautiful God that we serve. And I'd love to introduce you to him. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for the world that you have given to us and our place in it. Lord, I pray that as we look at these beautiful promises that you have given to your people, I pray that we would be able to apply them to our lives looking squarely at the face of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that we would never take our eyes off of him. And that because these things have been fulfilled in your son, they have been fulfilled for us forever. Lord, I pray that you would help us these things to comfort and stay our hearts. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.